There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Today we are going to tackle active versus passive investing and also talk about or lead into the introduction of index funds. Now, I should start off this, Greg, by pointing out that what we're talking about here are our opinions and they're based on our belief system. Absolutely right. So what happened last week, Greg? Well, let's just recap a little bit. We talked about efficient markets last time, and we discussed the development of the efficient market hypothesis. And what that is, or what that does, is it suggests that all information with regards to a particular company is broadly known and broadly reflected in the price of a company stock. So when you look at it, in the global financial markets, they're processing millions of trades every day worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And those transactions reflect the viewpoints of buyers and sellers who are investing their capital. So when you think about it, the market is acting as a giant information processing machine. It's aggregating a huge amount of information into those stock prices and driving them towards whatever their fair value is. So what that means is for investors who are attempting to outguess prices, they're pitting their knowledge against the collective wisdom of all of the market participants. And that itself is really the concept underlying efficient markets. And that can be true for many different asset classes. So stocks, bonds, houses, whatever. Right on. Things are priced based on the information. So this leads us into the next part of our discussion, which is the active versus passive. Now, this is a very historical debate. There's lots of people that are on both sides of this. Many people believing in active management and many people believing in passive management and probably a few in the middle there. But just looking at what we're talking about when we refer to active investing, we're talking about things like actively trading stocks, bonds, options, you know, so buying and selling positions. We're talking about maybe actively selecting sectors to invest in. So what would be a sector like mining and materials versus energy versus consumer discretionary? Sure, technology, real estate, technology these days, yeah. yeah. And that's actually a good point because in the U.S. there's a lot of discussion around the current returns being focused on tech stocks. I think that's a thing. Oh, it is. And they've far outperformed the broad market. The technology index is trading at all-time highs. So if you were actively trading that sector or stocks in that sector, you probably could be doing not probably, you could be doing better than just the broad market. But this argument that says that you can actively trade stocks, bonds, sectors, whatever, also says you can do that through active mutual funds. And it also says that you're giving yourself a chance at achieving higher returns by things like being nimble, something we often hear people reference when they're talking about active trading strategies. There's a guy named Barry Ritholtz who runs Ritholtz Wealth Management in New York. And just in October of this last year, he was quoted on Bloomberg. And what he said was that active management in the equity market, now this is in the U.S., so both in the U.S. and abroad, is dominant. 
and not by a little. The numbers he pulls out are that active management trounces passive management by a ratio of 8 to 1. And that if you expand that out to the entire world, it's more like 15 to 1. Now, this is just in the stock market. And what he also points out, though, is that if you include fixed income or the bond market, active management is 60 to 1 over passive management. So these numbers support this notion or belief held by many investors out there that active investing just gives them the opportunity to take advantage of events, various times and cycles, probably kind of like this current pandemic. And let's just talk about actively managed mutual funds for a second, because if you recall, a number of podcasts ago when we were talking about the evolution of investing, we discussed mutual funds and how mutual funds were an important development for individual investors because they give investors the opportunity to own a portion of a larger basket of stocks than they could individually by buying them themselves. And they do this by pooling their capital with other investors. So in a traditional mutual fund, the fund would hire a professional manager who select the stocks that are going to be included in the fund. And these managers accomplish this by using some form of analysis, whether it's fundamental analysis, technical analysis, other types of research, to select the stocks they're going to include in the fund. And to do that, it requires a significant amount of effort and research by looking at individual companies. They have to study the economy, conduct interviews with company management, etc. And this costs money which is charged back to the investors in the fund in the form of management fees. And as well as the management fees, there's costs required to be spent to hold investors' shares in trust to cover the costs of trade execution, other related expenses. And lastly, there's fees payable to advisors that recommend and purchase these funds in their investment accounts at investment dealer firms. And so in the case of actively managed funds, and certainly going back to the early days, the net result is the cost of a professionally managed mutual fund at their highest point could have been anywhere from 25 to 3% or even higher. That's different between fixed income funds and equity funds. That's true. You tend to see the expenses lower on fixed income funds, but again, still very high in the getting close to 2%. And so As the concept of efficient markets took hold, a lot of academics and industry players started looking at what if you just held the stocks that constituted a traditional stock index? So let's say the S&P 500, which represents the largest 500 stocks that trade in the U.S. markets. And so the first index mutual fund was actually created back in 1971 at Wells Fargo for institutional clients. And it was started by two leaders in the industry, their names Mac McQuan and David Booth. And you'll be hearing a lot more of David Booth in future episodes. But that was the first institutional index mutual fund. And a few years later, in about 1975, the first index fund for individual investors was created by Jack Bogle. And for anyone who recognizes that name, he founded Vanguard Funds. And Vanguard's the largest manager in the U.S., I believe, are they not? I believe that's right, yeah. Top two, anyways. Top two, for sure. And the other one would be another index manager, BlackRock, which manages the iShares. When index funds started, they had a bit of a rocky start. In fact, some industry players called the index funds un-American. So they took quite a while to catch on. When the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund started in 1975, they started with $11 million. That grew to exceed $100 billion in 1999. So certainly there was a dramatic offtake of index funds mainly in the late 1990s. 
Now, because individual holdings of an index fund track exactly the holdings and weights of the stocks that make up the index they're replicating, these funds are actually considered passive funds because there's no active stock purchase or sale decisions being made, only those trades that have to be done to replicate the index exactly. I think they're done twice a year, reconstitution dates. That's right. Most indexes are reconstituted every six months. And basically what that means is they just, stocks that are no longer qualified to be in the top 500, let's say of the S&P 500, get removed from the index and other stocks that would have grown to a size that they could now be included are included in the index. And obviously the index funds then have to make those transactions to get the new stocks in and the old stocks out. The other wrinkle that I wanted to just cover off because a lot of people these days will be hearing about ETFs, which stands for Exchange Traded Funds. And the index ETFs are essentially the same as an index mutual fund. And the only difference is they're traded on a stock exchange directly as opposed to the way mutual funds are traded, which is by buying or selling units of the fund directly back to the fund company itself. So in these days, most of the index units are actually handled through ETFs as opposed to index mutual funds. And the difference is very minor, and somebody once described it as the difference between a hardcover and a paperback novel. The book is exactly the same, and it's just got a different wrapper on it. And a last little point on ETFs, which is just interesting to us Canadian investors, is the first publicly traded index exchange-traded fund happened to be in Canada in 1990, and it was called the TSE 35 Index Participation Unit, or TIPS. So Canadians lead the way on index ETFs. Yeah, but as we've talked together, index funds are not all the same. Not all ETFs or exchange-traded funds are the same. I've had a lot of investors over the years that have come to me and said, well, look, I'm invested in index funds, so I'm diversified. But they might own things that are sector-specific or idea-specific. There's even been leveraged and twice-leveraged ETFs that have come out on top of just the broad market ETFs. So The recent trend we're seeing right now is that traditional mutual fund companies are launching actively managed ETFs, which seems counterintuitive to why ETFs were created in the first place, to be more passive. That's right. The whole idea initially of those first ETFs was really just to capture the stock index or the benchmark return without having to actively pick stocks. So you've got individual retail investors who are actively picking sectors, not just investing in the broad market. And you also have mutual fund companies that are actively trading ETFs. Now, this, I guess in some way you could call that passive if you're holding those individual sector-specific ETFs for a long time, if you're not trading them with regularity. That's right. But this idea of passive investing would be a little bit, our idea of it would be more than that. It'd be to be invested in the broad market over long periods of time without excessive trading. Well, sure. And the concept of a sector ETF, like a technology sector or a marijuana sector, really, that's a bet. So when you pick that ETF over an index ETF, you're making a bet that that particular sector, whether it's technology or marijuana or any other sector that you might choose, will outperform the broad market. But we have had people come in and they've had some ideas of things they've wanted to invest in. Let's talk about things like weed stocks. When this first came out and people said, I really want to get into this weed play, not that we were advising them to do that. We were counseling people like, look, maybe take 
the ETF or the index versus trying to pick which companies will actually succeed? That's just our nature is people are free to choose things that they have a belief in. And if somebody has a belief in a particular sector or a particularly affinity to a sector, whether it's biotechnology, weed or technology, we're always gearing towards let's do this in the least risky way possible. And for us, that means the most diversified way possible. And so if you're dead set on buying one of these types of companies in one of these sectors, then at least choose an ETF that will give you exposure to 15 to 30 to 50 companies in that sector, as opposed to making a bet on one individual company. And it's just another example of the get rich versus lose everything portfolio that we've discussed in the past. So our opinion is that a lot of these actively managed mutual funds are actually closet indexers. And so what we mean by that is they're basically, well, let's use the US as an example. Maybe they own the S&P 500 in totality, but they're overweighting a few companies or a few sectors and they're making those trades actively. They're trying to bet on small changes or small points of, I don't know, higher return they're trying to get, but they also acknowledge that they need to be really diversified. So there is an argument though that there are fund managers out there that exist that will outperform markets. And this is true. In every year, if you look at the distribution of returns from the lowest returning fund manager to the highest returning fund manager and what the average return is, and we've talked about this in the past, Greg, the average return is the market less the fees charged. So market performance less the fees. But there's these things called fat tails that exist if you looked at the distribution of returns. The fat tails are on the extreme left would be fund managers that consistently underperform the market. And on the far right would be fund managers that have shown to outperform the market on a pretty regular basis. So it's known that these fat tails exist. And the question is then, well, why wouldn't I just invest my money with one of the better performing managers on the right side of the fat tail? But the answer is, you just don't know who's going to be there at any time. And by the time they're identified as being an outperformer, there could be enough money that's flowed to them that's actually brought their performance back to the middle. So in essence, they might end up being market returns less the fees. Well, that's closet indexing, I guess, is that you've got mutual funds and ETFs. They're making up this investment space. It's well known to the public, but it's also a very small part of the investing universe. And according to this guy at Vanguard, who you talked about Vanguard, the global head of portfolio construction, he identifies that there's about $36 trillion in publicly traded shares in the U.S. market and that there's only $4.2 trillion in passive index funds. So about 12% of the market is in what you'd call a passive investment strategy, which 12%, not 88%. That number is also actually doubled in the last 10 years to get to 12%. So passive investing is making big strides, but active management is how most of the investment assets in the world are managed today. So the argument is then well, why would I want to invest in something that's just going to give me average returns? And we, we talked about this, that because everybody would make that same argument. Absolutely. I mean, the goal would always seem to be, well, I want to beat the market. I don't want to just get the market return. And there's lots of articles that are put out there that say, look, if passive investing is growing at the rate it is, what's the point of investing in it? Because you're just going to get average and that's not what you want. Or maybe the whole market becomes passive, which is an argument that was put out in Forbes just this month, June 2020. 
there was an article that talks about how, yes, ETFs give access to passive investing as a boon for small investors, but they can't rely on passive strategies forever. That passive, if it overtakes active, it just won't work. So this is, as I said, an ongoing debate, active versus passive. And Barry Ritholtz, who I mentioned earlier, he's made a statement to this. He's made a main claim. And his main claim is that the battle is over. Passive investing is victorious and active management has been defeated. Now remember, this is his opinion. We may share his opinion, but they're just opinions. And one of the things why people believe that active management has potential is because exactly what you mentioned, that there are managers every year who outperform the market. And when we talk about things like fat tails, so imagine for all of our listeners, because we can't show them a picture, but imagine what you used to call in school a bell curve. And that's just a distribution of outcomes. And so when you look at a distribution, so it looks like a curve with a bubble in the middle and the bubble usually represents the average return or the average of anything. And there's distribution to the right or the left. So in terms of vote performance, if you look at a bell curve or a curve representing performance of mutual fund managers, some are going to be on the right side of average, which is above average. Some are going to be on the left side, which is below average. And so a person might say, well, that's fine. I'm just going to pick a manager over from the right side of the curve. I'm just going to pick a manager who has outperformed the market and I'll just invest with them. Well, it seems to me, we've talked about this before, like there's another company, I won't share their name, a Canadian bank that had a portfolio specifically tailored to owning the best performing funds from the previous year. And how did that work out? It did not work out well. Let's just talk about why. So Dimensional Fund Advisors releases a study every year, what they call their mutual fund landscape. And what they do is they look at US specific data of mutual funds in the United States. And they analyze 4,439 mutual funds in the United States. And they look at, well, how have these funds done over various periods of time? So let me just give you some numbers, let's say, for 10 years to start. So for the previous 10 years leading up to last year, there was 3,088 funds at the beginning of that 10-year period. Of those funds, only 63% survived. So you assume that the 37% that did not survive probably didn't survive because their performance was not particularly strong or they didn't get enough investors to make operating a fund worthwhile. So again, 3,088 funds at the beginning of the year, only 63% survived. And over that 10-year period, only 21% of those funds outperformed their benchmarks. So just by chance alone, you would think that, well, half of those funds should have outperformed their benchmarks. And the reason why it's only 21% is because when you take the fees off of their returns, then after fees, they actually underperform their benchmarks. Now, these are equity-specific so these are funds. stock funds, funds that invest in U.S. stocks. And again, after 10 years, only 21% outperform their benchmarks. But how does that compare to fixed income funds? So in fixed income funds, the results are relatively similar. Now, it turns out that there's slightly better performance. Let's say over the same 10-year period, There was 1,462 funds at the beginning of the period, 1,462. At the end of 10 years, 71% of those funds survived. So 29% did not survive. And of the funds that survived, only 31% had outperformed their benchmarks. And so that's a little bit better than the 21% of stock funds, mutual funds that outperformed their benchmarks. And very likely because 
there was a higher rate of outperformance because the fees typically are lower, as we discussed with bond mutual funds. But still, again, you'd expect half of the funds to outperform and half to underperform just by chance alone, and only 31% actually outperformed their benchmark. So again, whether you look at results over 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, or take it as short as one and five years, you see the same thing. And generally, the numbers are pretty consistent. Typically, about 20 to 25% of actively managed funds actually outperform the benchmarks that they're comparing to. Well, we actually have that data. I mean, we looked at what they call top quartile. So top quartile just meaning the top 25% of all funds. And we looked at five-year rolling periods from 2005 to 2019, the data from DFA. It's good data. But what it looked at, again, from 2005 to 2019, rolling five-year periods, on average, 21% of the top quartile funds were top quartile the next year. And that really gets at that question about, well, why don't you just buy the manager's funds that outperform the index for the previous five years? But let's do that math real quick. 21% of 25%. So it's that 4.5%. So 4.5% stayed top quartile. Is that math right? Approximately. Okay. And then in the bond market, as you pointed out, because it is different, the fixed income market, same period, 2005 to 2019, 29% on average remained in the top quartile. So almost 6%. And what that means basically is that based on how a manager performed in one five-year period has virtually no impact on how they perform in the subsequent periods. And so just because a top quartile manager managed to be in the top 25% in the first five years, it doesn't mean he's going to be there in the next five years. Or she. He or she. That's right. That report you referenced, the Mutual Fund Landscape Report, it does have a summary of the data, and in it, it talks about the findings. The findings are that outperforming funds were in the minority, that strong track records failed to persist, as we just talked about, and that high costs and excessive turnover contributed to underperformance. Because we always talk about management expense ratios of fees or mutual funds, like the fees in a mutual fund, but not too many people talk about that other one, that TER, trade expense ratio. And that's just a function of if an active manager or of a mutual fund, there's a lot of trading, a lot of turnover in the portfolio, then that's going to increase the costs and sometimes dramatically. In many actively managed mutual funds, they turn over the portfolio at about 50%, which means that every year, half of the portfolio is being traded. TER being trade expense ratio for every one of those trades, there's a cost and the cost is picked up by unit holders. Exactly. So the lessons that are pointed out in this report are markets effectively aggregate investor knowledge and expectations into prices that are reliable, which again is just another way of saying efficient market hypothesis. Managers attempting to outguess market prices may incur high costs that raise the barrier to outperforming an index. I guess that would be reflected in higher trade cost. And that successful fund investing involves more than picking a top performing fund from the past, which we already talked about. And to consider a fund's investment philosophy, robustness in portfolio design, and attention to costs, among other factors. Now, interestingly enough, the company that put this report out just today sent out an email that they reduced fees on their F-class funds, which we can get into that at another time. But basically, they reduced the fees of some of their funds by three to five basis points today. 
which is great because that's just money that goes back into investors' pockets. What's your saying? The less you pay... Well, the less you pay, the more you keep. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I try to tell my kids that, but they don't seem to believe me. (laughs) So, Greg, what did we learn today? One thing we learned is there's a long and historical argument on active versus passive. And I would say between the two, we fall into the passive camp. And that's not to say that we think that index investing is necessarily the best way. We think it's a better way than investing in actively managed mutual funds. Yeah, and that ETFs were introduced as a passive alternative, but not all ETFs are actually passive. There's many that are fairly active, and those ones we mentioned earlier, the leveraged ETFs, I would argue, are high, high risk. For sure. And the other thing we learned is that past performance, and you'll hear this all the time if you read a mutual fund brochure, past performance is never indicative of future performance, as is evident from the survivorship and performance data that we talked about from the dimensional funds mutual fund landscape. Well, some good stuff. For anybody listening to this podcast, I hope that you'll send us some questions if anything didn't make sense or you want to talk about something further in regards to any of that. But just to wrap up here for fun, Greg, any books you're reading or shows you're watching these days? Not exactly in those areas, but I did have the opportunity to attend my son's grade 12 graduation ceremony this week. And interestingly, Unfortunately, for many of these kids, whether they're graduating from high school or university or college or what have you, graduation ceremonies are being canceled due to COVID concerns and things like that. But they did a really wonderful thing. So they put on a drive-in graduation. So we all drove our cars, pointed them towards a great big screen at the front in the parking lot of the school. They presented a nice hour and a half film talking about the graduating students and some of the achievements of those students. They did allow the students to march on the stage and pick up their diplomas, all the while being socially distanced from the principal of the school and each other. And so it was really great. There are ways people are finding workarounds to the COVID requirements that are put in place to keep us all safe. So I thought that was great. That's pretty cool. Now, I take it if it's a drive-in graduation, it's by nature, it just has to be a dry grad then. It was definitely a dry grad. So fortunately for the parents and unfortunately maybe for the grads. I've had some interesting things with this COVID-19 stuff going on as well. I was out on the golf course recently and I know you don't golf, so I'll tell you. In each hole, they've kind of plugged the holes with every course does a little bit different, but there's these plastic things where the ball will fall into the hole and you retrieve your ball by lifting the plastic cup out with your putter. It's meant so you don't have to touch the flagpole or anything. But what I often see people doing is reaching down and picking the plastic piece up with their hand to take the ball out of the hole, (laughs) (laughs) which I never quite understand. (laughs) Kind of defeats the purpose, I guess. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Kind of like a leveraged ETF, but again, just our opinion. But join us next week when we'll be talking about factor investing. Should be a fun conversation. Thanks for joining us this week and we'll see you next time. All right. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. 
The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Woodgundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Woodgundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kreminski are investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.